Well, it looks like by the clock, you've only left me about four hours. I'm going to do everything I can to be done in time. Uh, I actually had my 50th high school reunion last night. And... uh, Yeah, we did have a buffet. Actually, we had a wonderful dinner. They, the people who facilitated it did a great job. And, but you know, in a lot of ways, it was sad. Uh, you know, I went there. And, you know, I'm always complaining because I can't do some of the things the way I used to do them. And it's uh, sometimes not too much fun getting old. But I went there, and, of course, you had the people in wheelchairs. You had people on walkers. You had people that just had not aged well. And I'm looking around saying, these were my classmates. You know, this is the group I'm a part of. And, uh, yeah, I guess it's just, uh, we all are going to reach that place. And some of you are ahead of me. But uh, it's nice to know that this earth is not our home. (laughs) And we're not going to have to live with these broken down bodies. For much longer. Um, I was actually just the other night. I don't watch a whole lot of movies, but uh, I saw something that interested me. And old, I love old old movies. If I watch anything, it's old, older than me. And um, there was one that came on. It was really interesting. It was too late for me to watch the whole thing. I don't stay up late at night, but I got to watch half of it. But at the very beginning, I love this. At the very beginning. It's a, it's an, uh, it was an old southern town right after the Civil War, and it's all dusty, and the stagecoach pulls up. And this guy gets out of the stagecoach with this long coat open in the front, a little tough looking, and, but distinguished. And he's got two pistols, and instead of like this normal holster, he's got two cross draws in the front, which means you'd pull them like this. And this man gets off the stage... He walks into the saloon. He's never been in this town. He walks to the end of the bar. He pulls out those pistols. And everybody starts ducking for cover. And he waves them around. And you see confusion. You see fear. He tosses the guns on top of the bar. And you hear them bang down. And he looks out over the men. And he says this. I'm the new preacher in town. And you're going to hear my first sermon. <laughs> Nobody argued. Nobody argued. I love that. I love that. We won't be quite that melodramatic tonight, but I thought, wow, wow, what a way to start your ministry. That's that's a great way. You know, I, just to kind of break the ice before I get into the uh, tonight's message, you've got things when you have the opportunity to speak that you want to say. You have things that you need to say, and then thing, you have things that you have to say. And we'll be seeing a little bit of each of those in the remaining time. Uh, I've always been just fascinated with outer space. The heavens have just fascinated me. And, you know, when the Hubble telescope, when they launched it, you know, I was all excited about getting to see the first pictures. You know, they sent them back and they were blurry. And they were blurry because... They had built the telescope for Earth's atmosphere and not spaces by mistake. So they had to repair it. And I actually had the chance to sit down, meet, and talk with the astronaut that repaired the Hubble telescope in Florida a number of years ago. And then they start sending, his name was Story Musgrave, and they start sending all the 
uh, then they, they correct it. We start getting all these images of things we never dreamed of. One is called, if you've never seen it, you certainly need to Google it on the internet. It's a uh, uh, the Eye of God Nebula. And you look at this constellation and it looks like an eye looking at you. And they call it the Eye of God. There's just so much out there that's fascinating. They've even come up, they, they're, they're, they're designing a new telescope right now at the University of Colorado that's going to be 1,000 times sharper than the Hubble telescope. Well, the Bible says in Psalms 19.1, the heavens declare... The glory of God. And they do. And I want to, Aaron, will you come up here for a second? I'm going to stand about right here. And you stand about halfway between the table and the pew. That's about right. All right, now if I represent the sun, S-U-N, and Aaron represents the earth, God help us, (laughs) the earth, that's about 93 million miles. So where would you stick Pluto? If this is 93 million miles, how far away would you put the planet Pluto? Well, it would be approximately Rivergate Mall. That's how far away Pluto is. Now, that's a ways away from here. That's a long distance. If this is 93 miles, you think of the multiplied factor, how far away just Pluto is. Well, the the nearest star to Earth is called Alpha Centauri. That's the nearest star. Now, if Aaron was Earth, I was the sun, Pluto is at Rivergate Mall, where would you place the nearest star to Earth? Approximately Denver, Colorado. That's how far away the closest star is. We just can't even begin to imagine the vastness of an eternal heavens that just go on and on and on and on. The Bible says in Psalm 148.4, Praise Him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens, which means above the sky. Now, in the history of mankind, that has never meant anything to anyone. When they put the Hubble telescope in space, a number of years ago, a friend of mine who's passed away now, he was elderly, he was in my Sunday school class in another church, and he came in all excited with this article that they had discovered with the Hubble telescope Oceans of water floating in outer space. Never to any generation or any time. Now they're crystallized, they're, they're ice, but they're grouped together. It's oceans of them floating in space. And it never meant anything to any day, but again, it just validates the truth of God's holy word. We would have never dreamt. They had no idea where they came from, how they got there, but they're there. But God said they were there, so we should have known they were there anyway. They're there. They just fascinate me. Now, in the book of Job, it says he stretches out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. Well, of course, in ancient times, everybody thought the earth rested on something. 
But God said it resteth on, resteth on nothing. And we know that to be true, but they couldn't have known it when it was written in the oldest book of the Bible. But it also said what? He stretches out the north over the empty place. Well, guess what we learned from Hubble Telescope? If you stand outside on, at night and there's no light around you and you look up into heavens on any night, you can see about 2,000 stars. And no matter where you stand on the face of the earth and you look up, all the stars look the same distance. You can't tell any difference. But did you know when you, you go to the North Pole and you stand there and look up, even though they look the same, they're not. There's a vast cone of emptiness over the Northern Hemisphere. And what God say? God said, he stretches out the north over the empty place. The stars are much farther away at the north than anywhere else in relation to the earth. God said it. Didn't mean anything to any generation until ours. And now we know it's what it means. God was just telling us for our day, I wrote this word. And I've got a few things in there that you may, if you're smart enough, discover someday and you'll know I was telling you the truth. God's word validates God's word. I mean, it's just, I've been to Israel three times and all they do is dig and all they do when they dig is validate God's word. This isn't in my notes, but I don't know if you knew this. There was a lot of skeptics who didn't believe there ever was a King David. And then they would dig and they 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 dig. And sure enough, they find something. There's the inscription to King David. Every time they dig, they just validate the word of God. I also have done some studies and just a couple of things on the human body. That just The easy thing is, do you know you don't even have to think about it? But do you know your stomach every three days makes a new lining? Now, what did Jeremiah say? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, why? And you don't even have to think about it. Why does your stomach make a new lining every three days? Well, some of us know. If you've ever had acid reflux, you probably know why it does. Because if it didn't, the acid would burn through and you'd die. Your stomach is regenerating a new lining every three days. Now, the human body... Has average human body, and we know there's really no average, but the average body has approximately 73 trillion cells. Each cell contains DNA. We know DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. In fact, if you study some of the scientists like the uh, Francis Crick of England who won the Nobel Prize, he, he even said, he was an atheist, but he said, we know there is no way evolution could have occurred. We know that. Because of what they discovered about DNA. Well, DNA, what Francis Crick discovered was that it's a helix. Which you know what a helix looks like. It looks like a ladder that's twisted. And you've got two strands and they've got connections together and then it's, it's twisted. Well, one, one helix of DNA, if you remove it from the cell and you stretch it completely out. Anybody have any idea how long it is by itself? The helix itself is approximately three feet tall in a single cell. So if you break the two strands apart and stack them on top of each other, if my math is still as good as my math teacher, three plus three, that's six foot tall for a single strand of DNA. Now, 73 trillion of those are in the average human body. If you put those end to end, does anybody have any idea 
how far just the DNA in your body will reach. It's simple mathematics. Now, some people have asked me, well, will it reach around the world? Well, I'll just give you the easy answer. It'll go to the sun and back over 37 round trips. (laughs) The DNA in your body. Why? Because you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, one of the things I had a burden to share tonight, and I don't know why, uh, I'll just tell you. There's a parable in the scripture that I don't believe we've ever grasped the actual meaning of the parable. You know, the Bible doesn't say to read it. The Bible says to study it. And there's a parable in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, that says this. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, King James, if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? Now it goes on to say if it's, it's worthless and to be trampled underfoot of man. But it says, ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? Well, we all think, read that and think of flavor. It's flavor. When I saw salt does add flavor, if you look at the, if you look at Thayer's Greek lexicon, on this word savor, it means When it talks about if the salt has lost its savor of salt that has lost its strength and flavor. Well, what is the strength of salt? We don't think about it in our day, but you go back a few generations, they knew exactly what it meant. Everybody's heard of salting meat down. Why did you salt meat down? We didn't have refrigeration at one time and you salted the meat down to preserve the meat so you can save it and eat it later now salt has been used as a preservative since ancient times to protect food against bacteria mold and spoiling now salt is aseptic but it's not antiseptic now we're going to jump in the flesh and in the spirit. We've got, we got to look at the parable, but we've got to look at what Jesus is trying to say. So when you salt, what aseptic is, is when you salt the meat down, if there's a spoiled place in the meat, the salt prevents it from spreading. And that is the strength of the salt. It cannot cleanse. Why? Only Jesus can cleanse. But it can contain and keep it from spreading. So what happens? It says, but if the salt has lost its savor, if the salt has lost its strength, what can you do? It's basically what it's saying. What can you do? The reason being, if the salt has lost its strength, that means the whole carcass rots. The whole carcass rots. We are called as the people of God to be salt, to be a preservative, to contain evil. But yet, what have we done? Instead of containing it, we brought it into the church. We've compromised. We've become friends with the world instead of the conscience of the world. Now, some of you may know the the name Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer 
was a martyr in World War II. Hitler had him hung. Hitler hated Bonhoeffer because Bonhoeffer stood against him from day one. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor and he knew Hitler for what he was no matter how he tried to disguise himself. Bonhoeffer's most popular book is called The Cost of Discipleship. I always like to read, study, and and hear what martyrs had to say because these are people who put their life on their line for their beliefs. Early in that book, Bonhoeffer lays the fall of the German nation at the feet of the Lutheran church. And they're preaching of what he called cheap grace. Can you look outside these doors and tell me this nation hasn't rotted? This nation has fallen. How much responsibility does the church have to bear? Do we bear the same guilt that the Lutheran church bore in their own nation and allowed this to happen? And are we going to have to answer to God for not standing up and standing against the evil all around us? Another thing is so interesting to me is in this parable in the King James it says has lost his savor. If you're reading a new King James or many other translation, it says that the salt has lost its savor. So the King James actually assigns human identity to this salt. And I think it's for a good reason because if you study this deeply, it, it literally means this, this lost its savor, <clears throat> not only has it lost its strength, but it has become foolish. Well, salt can't become foolish. A human can become foolish. So there again, Jesus is ascribing that if, if we don't, if we, if we lose our strength and the carcass rots, we've become foolish. Because we have the power through Jesus to preserve, but we compromised instead of stood strong. And look what's happened. We spend all our time, and I've been guilty of this too, complaining about how the government has rejected and trampled upon the Constitution. We hear it almost every day. But I believe what is upon God's mind is how the church has rejected and trampled upon His Holy Word. Leonard Ravenhill once said, Christianity has not been tried and found untrue. Christianity has been tried and found too difficult by the church and the world. And so we seek another gospel. You know, the Bible says to walk in the spirit. But unfortunately, I think we spend too much time in the flesh. And in the flesh, when we really look at Christianity... And I can tell the pastor, he kind of touched on a few things that I was going to hit on tonight. Christianity... It requires way too much of us. It really does when we look at it from the flesh. I mean, Luke 14, 33, this is one you didn't touch on, but it goes in with what you taught this morning. Whoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the flesh, that's just simply not fair. And so many of us feel like in the flesh, you know, we need a different Christianity and we've molded and shaped it. You know, by, God made man in him, his image 
And man's been trying to reshape God in his image ever since. Now, it really, and it really to the flesh, it's not fair. Is it fair to be persecuted? Jesus said, they persecute me. You follow me? They're going to persecute you. Well, it's not fair, is it? It's really not. Unless we get out of the flesh and we move into the spirit. I think in the spirit, what's on our hearts is hallelujah, it is done. I believe on the son. I've been saved by the blood of the crucified one. And we are so thankful God has redeemed us. We are overflowing with his love and we obey his holy word. But we have to get out of the flesh and into the spirit. Then we understand that we're pilgrims here passing through. This is not our home. We're to crucify this flesh. We're to follow our Savior. He redeemed us. And when Paul said we're to be thankful in everything, I don't necessarily believe he was saying be thankful for everything. I think we've twisted that a little bit. We're supposed to be thankful to God in everything because if we're redeemed, our eternity is sure. Our eternity is fixed. And this is just what people do to us is not going to matter because they did it to him. And he went from the grave to a throne in heaven and we're going to be right behind him. And if that's our destiny, we need to live like it. I believe part of the problem, and I'm going to get to love. I ain't even started my, 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 my time yet. I told you I had I believe part of the problem is that the church has lost its vision of glory. Now, Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, which means revelation, the people perish, which means to become unbridled and lawless. So when we in the church turn from his word, we come up with our own word. We have become lawless. We've become unbridled. We now don't follow the Lord. We zigzag in all kinds of different directions. We're not under control any longer. Now, I believe one of the most misused verses in the Bible is this. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 9. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. I have heard that preached any number of times to convey we have no idea of what awaits us. Now, I'm going to tell you, we've been somewhat blinded as the church has sought to walk with one foot in the flesh and one in the spirit, double-minded, if you will, as mentioned by the pastor this morning. And you can look at me and you can say, well, doesn't the verse you just read stand on its own? How can we know what we cannot know? Well, how about just by reading the following verse? Now let's go back. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Let me read it again. I'm going to read verse 10. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Verse 10. But God. But God hath revealed them unto us. Paul didn't say, you revealed it unto me. Paul said, he hath revealed it unto us. And that us is the, give you an example. That, that us is the, the same word where you, in the Lord's prayer it says, give us this day our daily bread. It's the same word. It's talking about us. 
hath revealed. But God hath revealed. That's the Greek word, apokalupto, which means to make known, make manifest, disclose. What before was unknown is used of God revealing to men things unknown by the Holy Spirit. But I assure you, revelation is not for those that walk in the flesh. How much different would we live? How much power would fill the church if we had a vision of glory? May God lead us to repentance and full restoration as his holy church. May we walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Now we get to the sermon. Now here's what I'm going to do because we've taken some time on some other things. I am going to give you part of a sermon and if you but it stands on its own okay it stands on its own you don't need anything else it'll stand on its own I mean there's more to know obviously about everything but but it what well, I'm not gonna leave anything hanging or dangling but if you like what I have to say let the pastor know who knows it and if you don't like it let him know if he doesn't like me he'll let me know first <laughs> John 4 8 says this he that loveth not Knoweth not God, for God is love. Matthew 24, 12 says, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now it's odd, isn't it? We're supposed to be the salt. We're supposed to be the preservative. We've lost our strength. The carcass has rotted. And because the carcass has rotted, iniquity bounds. And now that iniquity bounds, we've waxed cold. Wow, what a, what a scenario. What a scenario. I'm going to give you two illustrations to help with the message tonight and where I'm going to try to get us. And we'll, we'll, we'll. There are two illustrations I think are good ones. Uh, many years ago, in fact, many, 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 many years ago, um, I had some involvement in the sport of bodybuilding. Now, back around the year 2000, there was a Russian grave digger named Alexander Fedorov. Now, Alexander Fedorov got permission to come to the United States and compete in the United States in bodybuilding. But his story was amazing. Alexander Fedorov was a grave digger in St. Petersburg, Russia. And used to be, I, I, you may still be able to, you can go on the internet and look up the pictures of where he exercised, where he worked out. He set up a, a makeshift, nothing of a gym in the basement of the building he worked out of and you could see mold and mildew on the walls junk looking equipment in fact the, the the iron plates were so worn the numbers were gone off of them what weight they were wrong worn off and then this nothing little space of a makeshift gym alexander fedorov managed to pack on 280 pounds of solid muscle on a six foot one inch frame and here he comes to the U.S. So he gets off the plane in California, and they want to impress him. They want to impress old Alexander. So they take him to the most famous gym for bodybuilding ever built, which is Gold's Gym in Venice Beach, California. So they take Alexander there thinking they're going to woo him and wow him, looking at where he came from to where he's standing then. And they walk him through the gym with every kind of apparatus that could ever be designed to help 
a man build muscle to be able to compete in these contests. And they walk him through this whole facility. And a short time later, they sit down with him for an interview. They say, Alexander, what did you think of the world famous Gold's Gym? And unimpressed, Alexander said this. Well, I saw a lot of posing, but I didn't see much lifting. I saw a lot of posing, but I didn't see much lifting. When I heard that, it it just started to... My brain just started to go off and I thought, wow, that sounds, is that what we're dealing with in the church? We want to admire ourselves and our accomplishments and what happened, happened in the past and live on the past and just leave the work that needs to be done undone. Let the machine sit idle as we just admire ourselves. Let me give you another illustration that will kind of start to begin, it will help tie this together. There was a small town, and within that small town was a seminary. And at the seminary was a professor, and the only thing he ever taught on was the love of God. He never spoke about the wrath of God, any other aspect or attribute of God. He only taught his students on the love of God. After a time, he became known on the campus as the professor of love. Over time beyond that, he became known in the small community because everybody knew everybody. And before long, he was known in the community as the professor of love by everybody. Well, this professor of love one day was undergoing some exterior renovations to his home. And one of the things they were doing is they were pouring a new sidewalk that would go around his house from the front all the way around to the back, a new sidewalk. So he was home as they poured the sidewalk and they, they finished the concrete. And the workers left. And he went inside his home. A little while later, he looked out the window. And this little toddler had gotten away from his yard, come over to that house. And guess where he was? Walking through the concrete. The professor looked out the window and saw him, jumped up, bolted through the door, screaming at his top of his lungs, You little blankety blank, worthless kid, what are you doing in my concrete? What did your parents, you're such a stupid kid, why did your parents even have you? Get out of here! Just screaming in rage. And the little boy started crying and and ran home. Well, he had neighbors close by, obviously, the little boy, and people heard. People heard what had just happened. And the phone lines lit up in the town that this professor of love had blasted this little toddler, cursing and hate and anger. The next day, the professor went to school. Went into his class. And one student just looked at him and said, Professor, what about that little boy? Professor said this. What I learned was 
While I loved that little boy in the abstract, I did not love him in the concrete. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, loving in the abstract is posing. So easy to do. But loving in the concrete, that's lifting. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 5 44, love your enemies. You talk about something's not fair. <laughs> now, now we're getting into something. We need to have a talk with Jesus. He's just gone a little bit too far here. Love your enemies. You know, I've talked to people before and asked them. Ask them about enemies. Yeah, so-and-so said this about me 10 years ago, and I'm just, it's just horrible. I've never been able to live it down. Folks, you want to know what an enemy is? I'll sit down with you, and I'll tell you what an enemy is. You get somebody that wants to take your life and is willing to pay others to try and destroy you, I'll share with you what an enemy is. I know. Yet Jesus said, love your enemy. Now, he doesn't exactly not tell us why. We all know, he says, wait a minute, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were his enemy, enemy, and he shed his blood for our salvation. See, if he did it, what does Christian mean? Christian, 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 what does Christian mean? Little Christ, little Christ. We're supposed to follow him. We're supposed to live as he lived. Love as he loved. Doesn't say it's easy. It's lifted. But if we have, if we walk in the spirit, if we're grateful, if we're thankful to God for what he's done for us, it's going to make it so much easier. So much easier. Now I want to share with you a story. We'll be brief here. We're, we're close, to the, close to the end. There are many stories out there like of captors and captives and things that have happened in different situations that people have just extraordinarily showed grace and love towards someone. But there's one story. I only saw it once, but I was mesmerized at the television a number of years ago in an interview. And I've tried to find it. I've tried to research. And and so I could get a copy of it. I, I haven't been able to but I'll never it's burned in my mind that when I think about love your enemies there was a man being interviewed and and, and what caught me was the preview to the interview before they went to commercials and came back to the interview because in the preview they showed this man sitting with his wife at a church he was actually the youth pastor they had under there he was was a youth pastor but when they showed his face his right temple was very, very thick. You could tell there had been some kind of traumatic situation that had happened to him. And his right eye was turned all the way in, like he was completely cross-eyed on the one side. And when he would talk and his left eye would move, his right eye would just jump, just, you know, twitch. Just It was kind of hideous looking. I, I, I just tell you, it's kind of hideous looking. And they came back. Then I said, I, I, I got to hear that. What, what kind of story does this guy have? 
So I interview him. And he's a youth pastor. He's probably about, at this time, he's probably about in his, his mid, perhaps late 30s. Very happy, very, doesn't seem to be too disturbed at the time about this extreme situation with his face. And he shares the story. He had grown up in a small town. This would have probably been, he's probably born late 50s, very early 60s. And his father had a machine shop in the town. And that's how the family made their living. They just had a, you know, just just got by. And his father, uh, having this machine shop, since he wasn't a big employer, you know, he he had a few regular staff. And he had a lot of transients, people that would, you know, come in and work a while, leave, you know, just like most companies of this type have. And when this boy was seven years old, his father had hired this transient that was coming through town. And the man worked there for a short time. And there was some kind of blow up. He didn't even know that nor what the details were because he was seven years old at the time there was some kind of a blow up with the father there was a firing of this man and it wasn't a good situation it was a very angry situation and he had the man removed from the premises a very short time later this little boy was kidnapped disappeared the family got a letter with a ransom demand. And the only suspect, when they contacted the police and talked about everything that happened, the only suspect was this man he had just fired. That, that was the only one they knew that might even think about doing something like this. So they were working on the, the, the exchange details for the uh, ransom. And the kidnapper got nervous. That maybe, you know, something, he perceived something just, just wasn't right. And it made him very nervous. And he had this boy out in the woods. And he took this seven-year-old boy. And he tied him to a tree with his hands behind his back. He went up to him with an ice pick. And drove that ice pick through his right temple and walked away and left him for dead. By some unknown miracle, this boy was found alive, as, as we know. We now have an idea of what's been going on here. They take him to the hospital. Of course, he has to undergo, undergo multiple surgeries. This had probably been, you know, 66, 67, maybe somewhere around there. Unfortunately, there were no forensics like we have today. And they, they, they got the man. They took him in for questioning. But he denied everything. They had no proof, no evidence. And they had to let him go. Well, this young man obviously healed to the point that he didn't have to be uh, in a hospital anymore. And he, he grew up with this severe now facial situation, blind in one eye. Met a, met a really sweet woman, though, got married, had children, became a youth pastor. Served God after everything that happened to him. And he seemed very happy. Well, one day at the church, remember he's grown up now. He's serving at the church, youth pastor. The phone rings. And it's a police department from multiple states over. And and they questioned him. I tried to identify exactly who he was, and he answered the questions. They said, "Did, did, did something like this happen to you when you were, oh yeah, you know, it happened to me. 
They said, well, we've got a man in the local hospital, a transient who's dying, who has confessed now to the crime. So this man, then, this youth pastor, at his own expense, he goes and buys an airplane ticket, and he flies into that town. He goes to the hospital. Boy, you think that professor got on that little boy? You put me in that situation. Let me go see this man. I have a few things to tell him. Well, he walks in the room. He tells the man who he is. Of course, the man can see the the damage. And the man just completely and totally breaks down. He starts crying. He tells him how sorry he is for what he's done. He said because of what he did, it had weighed so heavy upon him his entire life. He was never able to settle down at all, never had any friends, never had any family. He just wandered with this weight weighing him down of what he had done to this little boy. Well, the youth pastor sat down. No, he didn't say, well, you got what you deserved. took the man by the hand. By the time he left, that man had received Jesus. He had finally been able to repent to the one he needed to repent to. And God saved his soul. This youth pastor got up, got back on the plane, went home. But that's not the end of it. A short time later, the phone rang again. It was a hospital, and this man had died. Well, you think, gosh, you've done enough. You've done enough. Go on with your life. No, at his own expense, gets another plane ticket. He flies to the hospital. He claims the body. He pays out of his pocket all the funeral expenses. He has a funeral, and he's the only one there. And he gives that man a decent Christian burial. He gets on a plane. And he goes home. How do you love like that? I wish somebody, how do you do it? That's the love of God. That's the love of God. Hmm. Lord, we thank you for this time together. Lord, you know every time I speak, I always choose a subject that I need to hear. Lord, I basically preach to myself, and if anybody else can glean anything of it, of it Lord, that's, that's good. Lord, I pray. Help me and help my brothers and sisters if they need the same help, Lord, to get out of this flesh. To walk in the Spirit. To love our fellow man. And oh God. To love our enemies. Thank you Lord. For the faith that this pastor put into me. To allow me to stand in this pulpit tonight. Bless each and every one here. Thank you. Thank you. For dying on that cross. Not to save those that are good Lord. 
but to save the wicked. Blessed be your holy name. Help us, Lord, to gain that vision of eternal glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.